1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Today, reporting from the PDAC, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. It's the largest mining and resource convention in the world. There's 40,000 people at least attending. I'm in Toronto with the president of Cream Minerals. Cream Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the Over the Counter Bulletin Board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals. Thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report.
2: My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you.
1: Now, you've had some interesting developments since we last spoke on the phone about a week ago. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennial project?
2: That's right. We issued a news release last week, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Onsibocus North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and .4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes 11 and 12 were higher grade intercepts of roughly two meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold so overall really quite good results i'm very happy with them when you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential it becomes really very interesting
1: Well, you've got high grades at surface, high grades of silver at surface, higher than the last time we spoke. Uh, You're most definitely increasing the resource. When are we going to be able to report the resource? When are those figures
2: coming out? By the end of the first quarter, so by the end of March of this year. We expect that the resource will take a, a significant portion of the current inferred, move it into indicated, and we also expect that we'll be adding additional ounces to the current resource.
1: Will this specifically define the company as an open-pit resource project?
2: I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open-pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the uh, quartz veins and the quartz stock works uh, contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. You know, the prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera, are there sufficient ounces there, and are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly, at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera.
1: Well, there's nothing wrong with having an open pit in an underground operation at all.
2: No, no, not whatsoever. You know, at current silver prices, or even if you use um, silver prices of, say, $20 per ounce, an open pit will model very well financially, and a higher-grade underground mining operation will also model very well financially. So it's, we really have the best of both
1: worlds. In addition to growing the resource, your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. We've had several people come on the program and predict that it's going to hit 50 or $60 announced by the end of the year.
2: That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately 27 $0.28 cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar then our market cap is $153 million.
1: So that should, hypothetically, directly affect the share price of your company as well.
2: Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as a, um, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying that if the price of silver goes up, the value of the silver in the ground goes up, and sooner or later the value of the share price has to go up to reflect the increase of the value of the uh, silver in the ground.
1: Well, we've seen some new shareholder awareness just in the last few weeks that you've been a sponsor of the program could be due to several different factors. How do you see 2012 playing out for those that are not yet with the company?
2: For 2012, as I said, we have the new resource estimate pending uh, by the end of March of this year. Once we have that in hand, then we'll be able to finish laying out our drill program for 2012, and then we'll begin a, a drill program. Initially, it will be 10,000 meters. More than likely, we'll add an, an additional 10,000 meters to the drill program for a total of 20,000 meters in 2012. The big question is, where do you focus uh, those meters? And at this point, I think that we will probably put more focus drilling off potential open pit targets on the floor of the caldera than we will in uh, trying to drill off additional quartz veins in the, uh, in the east wall of the caldera.
1: Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders.
2: That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per tonne gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at, a, at an underground mining operation, simply so because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And, of course, there's
1: plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico. This is not virgin territory at all for mining.
2: No, it's not. We're within, let's say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power, we're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers I rode from peak the capital of Mayuride State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to some other projects I've seen. You never name names, but I can think of one project in South America which is going to require almost 200 kilometer long pipeline to move the concentrate. I mean, that's going to be incredibly expensive. Now the project economics will support it, but nonetheless, you're talking about huge amounts of money to do that sort of thing. In our case, because we're within 14K of good quality infrastructure, we won't face uh, investments of, of anywhere near that scale.
1: Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately?
2: Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of 47 cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Clara Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zietzow with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included CREAM in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. So effectively, we've got four companies covering us in one form or another.
1: And these are primarily before the recent data that you've been uncovering in the ground?
2: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. The first three analysts, Matthew Zelistra, Mike Bendrowski and Brian Zietz who have all done site visits. The coverage from Dundee is not as in-depth because the, the analyst hasn't done a site visit. However, we hope to get the, uh, the analyst down to the, down to the project in April. What's the most exciting thing about your company? Yeah, you know, I think the most exciting thing about the company is just the, the potential to grow the size of the resource and grow it significantly. We are sitting in a collapsed caldera. We are contained within the calderas an epithermal system. Epithermal systems can be very rewarding from the viewpoint of grade and tonnage. We're seeing more and more open-pit potential on the floor of the caldera which from the viewpoint of advancing to production, well, they can be advanced to production relatively quickly and relatively inexpensively, which means that the payoff for current investors and and potential investors could be significant.
1: Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the venture exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today.
2: Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure.
1: This is Ellis Martin reporting from the PDAC, the Prospectors Development Association of Canada in Toronto, Canada, for the Ellis Martin Report. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm sitting here with one of our sponsor companies, Gold Rush Resources, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol god.v, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX. Just type in G-D-R-R-F. I'm with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush. Now, you're focused on gold exploration in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Let's talk about Burkina Faso.
3: Burkina Faso is probably the best place in the world right now to be doing gold exploration. Uh, many people have heard of the Gold exploration being conducted in the Yukon Territory in Canada. problem there is it's only about a three-month field season. Burkina has an 11-month field season. There have been six new mines opened in the last five years, with another four mines that will probably be opened here in the next two to three years. It's very underexplored. It has great geology and just a wonderful place to work.
1: So by field season of 11 months, you mean there's basically no time with the exception of one month that you're shut down?
3: That's variable. Uh, In the north of the country, it's probably less than a month. In the south of the country, closer to the equator, uh, they do have a a bit longer rainy season. Last year, we drilled right through the rainy season on some of our projects because the rains really didn't affect us. Some areas do, however, get a little bit more rain and There, you're looking at probably one month to a maximum of two months that uh, you'd be shut down.
1: Now, Burkina Faso is in West Africa, which is a very prolific area for gold mining. Let's educate our new listeners and
3: enlighten them as to why that's true. Burkina Faso was underexplored historically. It was sort of left alone. It was a former French colony, totally landlocked, a very poor country on the United Nations Development Index, and it just didn't see a lot of exploration. But that didn't mean it didn't have a lot of potential. The amount of greenstone belts, which is one measure of the prospectivity of an area, uh, is higher there than it is in Ghana, Mali, or Niger. And certainly those countries have received much more exploration focus by international companies. Now, that has changed now over the last, say, 10 years. And there have been more and more companies coming into Burkina, and they've been having wonderful exploration success. If you look at Western Australia or the Yukon, the Exploration costs per ounce of gold are somewhere around $150 an ounce. In Burkina, they're more likely $10 to $15 an ounce. And and so you just get a lot more bang for your buck as an explorer in looking for gold in Burkina because it's much easier to find and there's been fewer eyes looking on the ground for it. So it's a much more prospective place to be than pretty much anywhere else in West Africa.
1: Now, last time we talked, you had alluded to some potential news coming out in a few weeks. Well, those few weeks have come by... This just came out a few days ago. You intersected 8.77 grams per ton of gold over 23 meters and 8.34 grams per ton of gold over 6 meters in fill and drilling at your flagship Ronjin Gold Deposit.
3: Yeah, that's right. We're very, very pleased with those results. Early stage, to some extent, we are in fill drilling and looking to update our resource estimate, sort of end of the first quarter. So this was in fill drilling, but it was also deeper and in areas where we had very little coverage previously. Although interpretation isn't uh, precise at this point, it does look like we've uncovered a cross fault with a deeper lens of higher grade gold. I mean, that 8.7 grams is about a quarter ounce gold. Typical grades in Burkina are on the order of one and a half to two grams. So to get 8.7 gram material is very encouraging. And we still have about 58 holes to announce from the program that we conducted at Rangan. We also have 13 trenches just completed there and results from those. And on top of that, we have another four permits with drill results pending where we think we've, at least on one of them, have really uncovered something quite remarkable.
1: Now, compared to your peers, you may be dramatically undervalued and this is the type of company that many investors get into potentially when they're looking for that three or four or five or ten banger they want to find a company that's under a dollar or in your case under 30 cents so that they can hang in for the long term and see some real gains especially when you're compared to some of the peers that exist in that area
3: i would like to think that gold rush would be a very attractive investment at this point we have an excellent exploration team that has been put in place over the last year or so They have, between them, 15 to 17 years each, I guess, experience. Our chief geologist, John Lern, has five discoveries in Burkina Faso to his name. Our VP Corporate Development and our VP Exploration are also very experienced guys with discoveries to their name. We have a crew of 45 geologists and support workers in Burkina with a fully staffed office. So we're in really good shape in terms of exploration potential and the ability to find gold. We have reasonable capitalization at this point. we've got just so many good projects that we're drilling or have just drilled. So there's really a pipeline of exploration potential, not just one project not just a couple of guys. So I'd like to think that that sort of scenario would be attractive to investors because it's more than a one-shot deal. We're going to do well with Rongwen. We think that'll become a, a mine at some point. Then as well, we have a pipeline of projects all the way from grassroots to farther advanced. This company
1: is not necessarily new in the business, is it?
3: The original company that is now called Gold Rush was incorporated in 1966. And as is the case in, in the resource industry, sometimes they go through some transformations over the years depending on market cycles. Gold Rush itself has been in Burkina Faso for six years and is actually one of the elder statesmen of companies in that country. It was sort of part of the first wave, I guess, of exploration companies into the country that began conducting modern exploration there, and that was about 2006. Yeah, an old company and relatively experienced with regard to Burkina. Subsequent to that, there's been at least two or three waves of exploration companies from Australia and Canada who have come to to Burkina and are picking up the third and fourth level permits. We think we've got some of the best permits in the country at this point.
1: Let's look ahead a year or two. What are your plans for the company?
3: Number one, to advance the Rongwen deposit to the feasibility stage and take it through feasibility with the concept being that we'd like to have a, a going concern mining operation, open pit heap leach mining operation at Rongwen. And number two, to advance as many of our other targets as possible to in a more advanced state, whether it be pre-feasibility or feasibility. And these things will take two to three years, but the prospectivity of the ground there and the ease in finding gold is such that it's not improbable or or impractical for that sort of timeline to be followed. So those are our two main objectives. And I think along the way, as we demonstrate more ounces in the ground and partnerships with larger companies, et cetera, these will be the sorts of milestones that should lead to an increase in share value. And that's ultimately what our goal is for our shareholders, to give them the best value possible.
1: Well, Len, we certainly do appreciate you being a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Let's look for some more developments from you in the future. Thank you very much for joining us today on the program. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush Resources. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol G O D and in the US on uh, the OTCQX just type in G D R R F or you can find them on the homepage of our website, Ellis Find us on the web at Ellis That's Ellis I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the PDAC, the Prospector and Developers Association of Canada, the biggest mining and resource convention in the world that convenes every year about this time. I've been on the road with Scott Drever in probably three different conferences, and it's only the beginning of March. Scott Drever is the president, the CEO of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as S T V. ZF. Scott, again, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks so once again, uh, Ellis. It's great to be here.
1: We are road warriors, aren't we? It
4: seems to be that way. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on the road the first part of the year.
1: Do you find when you come out to these conferences all over North America that you get a chance to tell your story to new potential investors and meet with the shareholders and update them in person? What's the value in that for you?
4: It's just that we have been doing a lot of road shows and telling the story of Silvercrest and its progress with respect to its cash flow and its exploration program. And what that does is uh, make people familiar with the story. There's a lot of people uh, across North America that aren't familiar with Silvercrest, and we're just trying to get as many people looking at the story as we possibly can because we think it's a great story in the silver space. We consider there's a lot of upside potential to it.
1: Well, it seems like you've either been very successful at talking about your company or the results that you're finding in Mexico in Sonora State are outstanding with respect to your La Jolla and your Santa Elena properties.
4: Yes, I think people are are starting to realize that the combination of things that we have in this company make it a very, very interesting story. The Santa Elena has reached a steady state of production. We've got a, a two-year program there to double the current production. And uh, La Jolla is turning out some really, really exciting uh, results on the on the exploration work that we've done so far.
1: You know, with about 3,000 companies or more in the junior mining space, it's really difficult to find a small handful of companies where the risk has been minimalized. And I believe you're one of those companies where the risk is fairly Minimal. That's certainly true.
4: Santa Elena, we went to commercial production last year. So all the resource risk, the financing risk, permitting risk, all of those things that you run into in, in mining operations and bringing them on stream have been put behind us. And with a heap leach open pit operation like we have, One of the risks are generally the last one to be cleared is the recoveries on the metals that you're putting on the heaps. And we're seeing recoveries track very closely the uh, metallurgical work that we did to determine what the recoveries would be. So that's kind of the last one out. Our operations are running nicely. We're putting more through the mill than we had expected uh, initially. And so the gold just keeps coming out at the end of the tube.
1: Is it a matter of a natural flow of understating and overperforming?
4: Well, we like to do that. We like to be able to look back and say, well, we said we were going to do that, and we've done it. So, yeah, we tend to understate a little bit and and hopefully overperform.
1: I was interviewing one of my peers yesterday, Sean Rakimov with SilverStrategies.com. He's a silver analyst that's been around for a long time, and I asked him to pick one company out of the entire space. And he mentioned your company. Sean has been a good
4: supporter of Silvercrest from quite a ways back. I can remember standing on the Santa Elena Hill just after we had finished off the drilling and the feasibility study. And Sean's comment was, I really like this. You have the timing right because he says, by the time you're into production, my guess is that silver would be $50. And I think that was probably in 209 or someplace. And I think we banged on that $50 range a couple of times.
1: Now I asked him, he's been a shareholder for a while. He certainly got in when the price was uh, well below where it's at today. I said, would you possibly consider that are accumulating more stock at its current level, which is near $3, and he said absolutely.
4: Well, I think he's right. I'm a little biased, mind you, but absolutely I think he's right. We've got... A significant number of catalysts coming down the road. We've got good solid cash flow. We've got money in the bank. We expect to double the production and hopefully the cash flow within two years. And La Jolla is coming on strong in the results it's returning. All of those things together, I think, when the the market identifies the value associated with each of those steps, we should see a a decent re-rating on the share price.
1: Now, you have two potentially humongous if I can use a California word, projects there, you're defining the resource at La Jolla, and yet you're continuing to expand the resource at your production site at Santa Elena. That must be contributing to the, the rise in the share price.
4: It's certainly Santa Elena and the ability to uh, double the production in the next short while is adding to that value that you see in the share price. We haven't cut off that particular deposit. We're open-pitting it at the moment. We do know that there's a considerable resource below the open pit, and we have never cut it off a long strike or to depth. So our expansion program, in part, includes an underground decline that will examine what we know about the resource under the pit, but also extend it into the area where there's been no exploration work.
1: Tell us about the potential size of the polymetallic resource at the Coloradito target at La Jolla.
4: Yeah, we have several targets at La Jolla. The one that we focused on, obviously, is the main mineralized trend, where we announced a resource recently of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent. There are a couple of adjacent targets to that main mineralized trend, one of which is the Coloradito. And we announced the results of some historical drilling that we were able to uh, confirm. We see there a a tungsten moly gold-silver system that has some sizable dimensions, if you can look at the, the historical data, and we have a number of holes planned for that. But generally, the container size there, I think, is about 500 meters by 200 meters wide by a couple of hundred meters depth. There's a lot of room for a large potential open pit deposit, but obviously we have a lot of work to to determine how much of that container size has the appropriate mineralization.
1: So you really can't speculate about how that's defined at this moment. You can just say that you're looking. That's
4: exactly correct. We have an 80-hole program going on at the moment for La Jolla, and I think there's 8 or 10 slated for that particular deposit. And at the end of that series, we'll have a much better idea of what it means and how big it might be.
1: Is that 80 holes for 2012? Uh,
4: Yes. Uh, We hope to have that finished probably by June. Uh, With the view to doing a resource update before the end of the year.
1: How are you financing all all this drilling? We
4: have $30 million in cash in the Treasury. We're well positioned there. Also, Santa Elena is uh, providing about Two to two and a half million dollars a month in cash flow. So from cash flow and cash in the bank, we're well positioned to finance both our expansion plans and our exploration activity.
1: You're well on the way to predicted ratings by some of the research analysts that have been following you. Yeah, we've made good progress towards those
4: targets. I think Canaccord's analyst has put a five dollar seventy-five as a target price for us. Jennings Capital out of Toronto has a target price of five twenty-five, and Dundee Capital just initiated. A their coverage on us last week and uh, have put a buy signal on it but haven't given us a target number yet.
1: So these are all recent updates if I recall.
4: That's true yeah. We had a, um, a mine tour and a site tour a couple of weeks ago and those analysts were on those trips. You know they're talking from first-hand viewing of our work and, and what we're doing and uh, you know they make their own judgments.
1: That's up about a dollar, dollar and a half or so since we last spoke at the end of January.
4: We've been doing some extra legwork in terms of getting the story out and I think we're starting to see the traction uh, grab hold on the the story and people are looking at the value that's here now and the value they see coming down the road. It's created that kind of interest and we're trading good volumes. We're doing probably four or five hundred thousand shares a day, which gives everybody good liquidity.
1: Nevertheless, as, as well-known as you may be in Canada and throughout us in the sector, you're still a new story to many in the U.S. We've started to focus
4: on that because obviously the, the market there, particularly for silver companies, is much, much greater than uh, what it would be in Canada. So we've redirected some of our investor awareness program to the U.S. We've been doing road shows in eastern U.S., in the Midwest, and also on the West Coast. There again, I think it's people starting to be aware of that story. We're also looking at the possibility of moving to a a more senior exchange, both in Canada and the U.S.
1: What are you most excited about Silvercrest during the next 12 to 18 months?
4: Obviously, the operations are important. It'll help us to build our cash flow, and the uh, expansion plan that'll help us to, to double our production are, are very important things. And those are good, stable things that every company needs. The excitement, I think, is going to turn around the La Jolla project because our first indications on that is that it c- has the potential to be a huge deposit and uh, can be a significant game-changer for Silvercrest.
1: Bigger than Santa Elena?
4: Absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers at La Jolla of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent, it's probably bigger at this moment than what Santa Elena is, although we still have the expansion plan to determine what uh, Santa Elena's ultimate size will be.
1: What does that mean for a company like yours potentially four or five years down the road? What's your long-term vision for Silvercrest?
4: We're always trying to grow in some fashion, whether it's internally through the expansion plans at Santa Elena, for example. We look at other projects that could be brought on relatively quickly. It's a little early to tell at La Jolla just yet, but there's a whole range of possibilities there in terms of production. You could do a production unit of three to four thousand tons a day because there's some very high-grade areas in that deposits itself, but it could also be forty or fifty thousand tons a day because the indications are that there will be tonnage and grade to support that kind of production.
1: And what's the average cost per ounce as it stands today?
4: Our cost per ounce at uh, Santa Elena is about $8. It depends which quarter you pick, but about $8 per pounds of silver equivalent.
1: How are you feeling about the price of silver heading up to possibly uh, $60 an ounce by the end of the year?
4: I think I'm on the record someplace of having said that uh, I expect to see it at least touch $60 this year, and I probably have some money on it as well, so I'm hoping that uh, I haven't overextended myself.
1: I've been speaking with Scott Drever, the President and CEO of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, is ST. TVZF. and we're at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, Ontario for the Prospectors Development Association of Canada, PDAC, the biggest mining convention in the world. That happens every year, this time in March. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report.
4: My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very
1: much. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalties Buck Reef Project is an advanced stage gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With thirty million dollars in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's Tanzania. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's A-N-L-K-Y. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. You've been on the road a great deal and you've been finding a warm reception with developments at Dubbo. What do you think is happening?
5: We've actually just completed a two-week roadshow into London, New York and a, and a bit in Toronto as well and I was genuinely pleasantly surprised by the reaction that we got. The markets in, certainly in New York and London were far more buoyant than I thought they might be and they were just very receptive to alkane and where alkane's going, particularly with the Dubbo Zirconia project. People start to acknowledge now that we are one of the most advanced sort of rare metal, rare earth projects. Projects in the world and uh, certainly will be up there amongst the top four or five in two or three years time when we're in production. It's very good to get that message across.
1: Well then it's quite helpful to have the double mini pilot production plant it makes a difference, doesn't it?
5: Absolutely. It certainly does, and there's no doubt You know, being able to show product coming off the plant, the fact that it's been running now for nearly four years, uh, we have a number of MOUs, an off-take in place, uh, it's a convincing step forward, and uh, it's something that all companies at some stage really have to do. They have to demonstrate their process, that it works technically, and then obviously economically, and finally you need product to, to take to your customers, and uh, that's the only way ultimately these projects will succeed.
1: You're not just an exploration project with no infrastructure, you to go, basically?
5: Absolutely. With Dubbo, this next nine months, the remainder of this year is dedicated to put all the environmental approvals in place, put all the financing in place, uh, just to do the last MOU on the rare earth output, and that's pretty close. I'm hoping we'll have that done by the end of March. So a lot to do in this next sort of nine to 12 month period, but hopefully by March of next year, we're in a position to go and, and we've got uh, state government approval to go. So that would be great. After all, the years of hard work that's going into the project.
1: With over a year or more to go, how is it that you have at least three off take agreements that I'm aware of.
5: Again, because of the demonstration plant being able to take substantial product to end users and and talk to the end users about what they need, what the product quality is how it fits in with their requirements Uh, and that really does make the difference. Currently we have all of our zirconium output committed uh, all of our niobium output committed With the rare earths, we've been slightly more circumspect. We've got a model for doing that deal that's a bit different. We certainly don't want to just sell the two concentrates, the light rare earth concentrate, the heavy rare earth concentrate We actually want to end up into a partnership with the party to take those two concentrates to process them, do all the separations, they then get the prior right on the material that they want. But it gives us back separated product that we can also sell to customers that we have that we haven't been able to specifically supply because of just having the two concentrates at this stage. So again, that all comes off the pilot plant and being able to to get product to people.
1: So tell us why zirconium is much more important for your company than rare earths at the moment.
5: I guess it's our bulk volume uh, material that the plant produces or that the project will produce. So we will produce about 16 thousand tons a year, as against roughly 3,000 of niobium, 3,000 light rare earths, and probably 1,100, 1,200 tons of heavy rare earths. So it's the bulk volume. It's also about 40% of the revenue of the project, and the good thing about it it's a very rapidly growing market. A lot of applications are being developed, a lot of really good end-use developments, so it's a very positive business. It probably doesn't attract the attention that the rare earth industry does, but in some ways it's very similar. A lot of the materials are used in advance applications in terms of environmentally friendly applications. Uh, so it's, it's got a lot of similarities to Rare but hasn't quite received the public attention.
1: But yet in the US, you're a $13 stock.
5: Yes, well, our market cap has increased a bit over the last three or four weeks. A mixture of market sentiment, the market being a little bit more receptive to uh, projects like ours, but also the fact that that marketing exercise into London and New York, particularly, uh, we saw a lot of interest, a lot of interest come out of those two big cities and saying, well, Alcane is a very advanced in its project development and obviously has a very big future and the project economics are very, very substantial. So it's got a big future. So that's really why why the price has appreciated in the last three or four weeks.
1: How much revenue do you expect to generate once you're in production?
5: At this stage with Dubbo, uh, the anticipated revenue is about $500 million a year, somewhere in that order, and it, it'll vary obviously between US and Australian dollars, but given the exchange rate, we're probably looking at something around $500 million US dollars a year, of which we think that will convert to about $300 million year cash flow or free cash flow. So... In that sense, it's a very, very good project. It's almost got an open-ended life. It's open-pitable. We can open-pit it, open pit mine it for probably 100 years or more than 100 years. So that's the big driver for us. But we do have other projects. Our gold project, very close to go. We're just waiting for the final approval from the state government, which we are hoping again are to have done by the end of March. But uh, that will put us back into gold production, say, March 2013. And on a 50,000 to 60,000 ounce a year producer, that'll again generate about 35 to 40 million million a year cash flow out of that business. So it'll be on stream before the bigger Dubbo project is, but providing a really good backup Bread and butter business cash flow for, from that operation as we go forward into the into the bigger operation. Maybe in three years time, four years time, alkane gets up to being a, a 350 million a year cash flow company with two or three other good projects in the pipeline to come on stream in two and three years after that. The strategy has been very much a cash flow generated cash flow operations. You know, we're not particularly concerned about which commodity or which product we're in as long as we can make money out of it, and uh, that's really where we see ourselves going. And you know, we've genuinely and publicly stated it's our plan. To to uh, pay dividends, and we think we can pay dividends back to the shareholders.
1: Ian, it's been a very exciting few minutes with you. It looks as if there's a very bright future for Alkane Resources and its shareholders. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, the president of Alkane Resources, trading in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on our website, Ellismartreport.com. Join me now for an interview with Andrew Hoffman, Marketing Director for MilesFranklin.com. Miles Franklin Limited is one of the largest full-service discount brokers for gold and silver bullion, platinum and palladium, and numismatics in North America. Mr. Hoffman was a buy-side and sell-side analyst working on Wall Street at Solomon Smith Barney. For the last 10 years, his focus was entirely centered on the metals market. Previous to joining Miles Franklin, he worked as a consultant to junior mining companies. He writes a daily blog found on the milesfranklin.com website simply called Ranting Andy. And we're pleased to have him as a regular guest on the Ellis Martin Report. I take it that we're just finishing up. or starting to quote in your words to put together a paper printing orgy.
6: The fact. Was- was hit because gold and silver were about to break out, particularly silver, and they had another one of their coordinated attacks, which I've called the leap day violation, which uh, not uncoincidentally was at exactly 10 o'clock a.m., which is their favorite time to attack. That's when the physical market closes for the day.
1: I think you mentioned the cartel, and by the cartel, are you equating that to the big banks?
6: Yes. Well, Actually, I'm really equating it to the U.S. government. If you want to go on a bigger picture to the Western governments trying to, you know, to control all the money and the power in the world, but the U.S. government leads that, those banks are really just their henchmen, you know, the J.P. Morgans and the Goldman Sachs. It's kind of like this symbiotic, you know, where you have a parasitic disease. They both need each other. The the politicians need the lobbying funds from Goldman Sachs. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs need the political power. So together they have a plunge protection team that supports the stock markets. They control the Federal Reserve, so they control uh, the bond market. They control the exchange stabilization fund and thus the currency markets and, of course, this gold cartel to suppress the precious metals prices.
1: Is Bernanke the cartel spokesperson?
6: No. In fact, I I almost think that the Federal Reserve is a puppet of these higher forces from the banks. Uh, Because let's face it, the Federal Reserve is owned. I mean, it's a chartered bank owned by these companies. Most people don't realize that. Yes, he certainly knows what's going on, but he's not the top player in the game.
1: Now, to some listeners, this might sound like pure conspiracy theory, but that's not where you're coming from.
6: No. I've been a financial analyst my entire life. I'm a CFA. I worked on Wall Street for, as a sell side analyst, 10 or 15 years. I back things up with numbers. I've gotten all this from the findings of GATA, the Gold Antitrust Action Committee. And, uh, you know, in time, I've built a database of this stuff, which I've been publishing on a daily basis for years. People like to throw around the term conspiracy theory just kind of debt to denigrate people. It's almost like saying gold's a barbarous relic. It's not based on anything. The conspiracy is true. It's been admitted many, many times. There's plenty of proof from not only admissions, but just from uh, the math that shows what they're doing. And look, let's face it. Everyone knows that every other market is manipulated because they admit it, like you know QE or the President's Working Group on Capital Markets. This is the only one that they don't want to admit because it's the linchpin of the whole system. The fact is that precious metals have been suppressed forever. There was a thing called the London Gold Pool which did the exact same thing as the cartel's doing now. They did it in the 1960s, and eventually it was broken by demand. This time they're doing the same thing. They just don't admit that they're doing it.
1: Is the suppression, in your opinion, politically
5: motivated?
6: Uh, Well, yes, it's politically motivated. It's the ultimate battle that goes back centuries between real money and paper money, because paper money is what gives governments power. It enables them to uh, give entitlements to anyone they want so they can get votes. It enables them to get any spending plans they want through. It enables them to make powerful friends and to keep their power base. Uh, Physical money, gold and silver, does not allow them to do that because you can only print as much money as there is gold. So it's been the enemy of governments forever, and it's been tried dozens and dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, these fiat standards for the same reason, power, and every single time they fail. This one, like all the others, is failing. It's now 41 years old since we've gone on to this not just one-country money standard, we're on a, a fiat standard for the entire world. Obviously, it's not working because we're seeing massive, massive debts everywhere, we're seeing massive inflation everywhere, and of course, even with the suppression, the price of gold has gone up seven or eight times.
1: I understand the Korean government is printing a lot of fake U.S. dollar. How is what this government is doing, or the Fed doing, how is this not the same sort of fraud?
6: Well, it is the same fraud, and that's the beauty of having an entire world on a fiat currency standard. Every single government is printing money at will because there is no backing to what they're doing. Now, of course, the Korean government can't impact the world that much because... Very few people use Korean won for transactions. Some of the countries we have seen destroy their currencies just recently. We've seen it in, in Hungary, in Argentina, Zimbabwe. This is just that has happened in the last few years. I put out a piece called Fiat Failure where I documented all of the, just the modern era collapse as a fiat currency. And you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's literally happened in almost every country. It's happened three times in the United States, and people wouldn't realize it. The continental currency was destroyed by the Revolutionary War, the Confederate dollar by the Civil War, and the greenback, which was the northern dollar in the Civil War, created by Abraham Lincoln, a fiat dollar, was about to be destroyed when the war ended. So otherwise, we would have lost three currencies.
1: Is it destined to happen again?
6: Yes, it's happening right now. It's just a matter of pace. And the fact is, you look around at the reality of what's going on with the debts of the world, with the economies of the world, with the inflation of the world. And it's just a matter of time. And it's not, oh, it's going to be, you know, three or five years. No, this is happening now. 2012, 2011 was a major year for changes. Obviously, 2008 was. And I believe 2012, before the year is over, you're going to see some, some major, major changes in the way people view the world's
1: economies. Are you referring to, in part, the price of gold and silver? One of our other contributors, Jim Sinclair, predicted for 2012 a 1700 to $2,100 an ounce figure for gold.
6: I'm a little careful with predictions at a certain time because so many variables are in play. I certainly am on record based on my technical and fundamental analysis of believing that we're going to be setting new all-time highs later this year. Certainly $2,000 gold and $50 silver look like no-brainers to me. But, you know, could these things be March? Could they be December? It's hard to tell. Could it even get to next year? You just never know. But I am hard-pressed to believe that we're not going to be challenging gold's all-time high from last August, you know, in the next three to six months, if not sooner.
1: When there's a contraction based on fluffy, superficial, News more or less put out by the cartel. I want to contact Miles Franklin and stock up on bullion.
6: It didn't contract based on news. It was violently attacked with naked shorting. That the evidence is there again. People say conspiracy. There were contracts that traded 375 million ounces worth of paper silver right at the time Bernanke started speaking. You know, and that's when silver fell three dollars in in a matter of uh, half an hour, forty five minutes. That's a half of all of the physical silver. world for six months. It had nothing to do with the news. Bernanke said nothing. This was more of a fear of, look, you saw gold and in particular silver really starting to break out. Earlier that day, you had the LTRO in Europe of 530 billion euros just printed and given out to banks, a major monetary inflation event. And so they attacked. Maybe it takes a week to get back where we were. Maybe it takes a month, but we'll be right back there again. And then we'll challenge those highs. And, you know, I believe that very strongly in the the impact of psychological numbers and i know the cartel does too because that two thousand gold and fifty dollar silver are looming right in front of everyone's eyes
1: the banks themselves are doing the naked shorting
6: well look naked shorting simply means selling something you don't own because you know the concept of shorting was obviously created by the banks way back when just to get commissions you know because they figured oh well if the people have stocks in the bank, we can have other people borrow those stocks, and then they'd have to pay us an interest rate, a margin interest rate to borrow those stocks, and then we'd get a commission on shorting it and then covering their shorts. But that was way back when, when it actually was legitimate. I've never been a big fan of the concept, but it was legitimately done. Now we're at the point where, particularly the big banks, are naked shorting, meaning they're not borrowing the stock, they are just putting in sell orders. And when it comes to the precious metals, whether you're talking about the mining shares or the paper gold like GLD and the futures contracts like at the comic. This is pure, pure naked shorting. Wouldn't it be great if you could just have an unlimited license to put in as many orders as you wanted? If you wanted to own, let's say, Tanzanian royalty, and you wanted to go up, you had the ability to buy all the shares that you wanted and never have to put up the money. Or if you wanted it down, you could short all the shares you wanted and never have to borrow the shares to get them. That's what naked shorting is. And there is no sector that you see it more than precious metals.
1: So the banks can never back it up. They don't have enough gold.
6: No, not even close. You know, it's been admitted by some of the cartel apologists that the paper, silver, and gold markets are hundreds, if not thousands, times larger than the real market behind them. And that's what they want you to do. They want people to, if they're going to buy gold, they want them to think that things like GLD are actually gold. They're pieces of paper that are, the custodians are the very same people who are trying to manipulate. I mean, the fact that SLV, the custodian is J.P. Morgan, who's being sued by half the planet for naked shorting silver, should show you how untrustworthy these kind of paper funds are.
1: You mentioned the word people, Andy. We've been talking about all these institutions as if they're institutions, and they are, but they're made up of people. What people are benefiting from all of this?
6: Very few. And when they say the 1%, I think that's highly overestimating it. This is a topic I write about constantly, about human nature and how it is that these people that are at the top of these food chains can get this way. And I'm not talking about Bernie Madoff people. I'm talking about way, way above Bernie Madoff people. The Bilderbergs, the people who are the top politicians and some of these bankers. A guy like Mario Monti, the guy who's been, you know, installed to run Italy. He's from Goldman Sachs. Uh, he's from the Trilateral Commission. I don't know where they get these people, but these are the type of the people who are benefiting. All the banks who are receiving the ZERP, the Zero Interest Rate Policy money, the top executives there, they're benefiting a big way. And all the politicians that get the lobbying funds, such as Obama's administration, Mitt Romney's campaign, George Bush's, you name it. That's who's benefiting. The rest of the people get nothing.
1: There is not a conspiracy theory. There's only truth.
6: Yeah, and much of it is documented.
1: What are we going to do with all this information in our heads?
6: Right. Okay. Well, look, precious metals is the only real money, and I, I can't emphasize enough that precious metals is not an investment. I mean, paper precious metals is. If you're buying GLD or a stock, that certainly is. But if you're buying the metals, you have to think of it as real money. And Miles Franklin, we are one of the biggest bullion dealers in America. Our job is to help you to purchase precious metals. And if you would like to store them, we have storage facilities in both uh, the United States and Canada.
1: Talk to me about ranting Andy.
6: I'm from New York. I live in Denver now. But I spent 15 or 20 years As a wall street analyst i did everything i was a broker a sell side analyst buy side analyst i left that business 2005 because it disgusted me i spent most of my career at solomon smith barney i saw all the corruption saw all the uh the conflict of interest and i also back in 2002 became uh, 100 percent invested in precious metals when i left wall street in 2005 i just taught myself the business and i've been working for mining companies Uh, as a consultant or an investor relations officer up until this year uh, when I joined Miles Franklin. As far as ranting Andy, I've been writing since 2006 or 2007 a free blog just to educate people About protecting themselves against uh, the things I'm talking about here. It's not about recommendations. It's not about stocks. It's not about anything other than helping to protect people. And now that I'm at Miles Franklin, I can do it through this major platform. And Miles Franklin, you know, we have a meeting of the mind. David Checkman, who started the firm 20 years ago, he still writes a daily blog every day, and he he thinks exactly as I do about the benefits of educating people about this sector, which has so much propaganda surrounding it.
1: One final question, Andy. What are we going to do with all this gold and silver bullion that some of us are collecting when the currency collapses we're not going to want to turn it back into cash what are we going to do with it
6: this is the kind of thing where people are always saying well what if this what if that and the fact is we all know that what's coming ahead is going to be unprecedented what we're seeing today is unprecedented but what's coming ahead is going to be more so now can i say that we're going to have a quote currency collapse every in one day everything is gone is it going to be more gradual will we bomb iran and we'll have a world war i mean i don't know But I do know this. There is no scenario going forward in which the value of paper money, particularly the U.S. dollar, is going to be higher or which the value of precious metals is going to be lower. I want to cross that bridge when I get it because when I get to that bridge, I assure you that precious metals are going to be worth more and the dollar is worth less.
1: The website is milesfranklin.com. Ranting Andy Hoffman's blog is free and easy to access. Thanks so much for joining me today, Andy. Thanks for having me. Find a link to milesfranklin.com or the homepage of our website, Ellismartreport.com. Adam Smith is the Vice President of Corporate Development for Oroco Resource Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Oroco is a Canadian-based exploration company with gold, silver, and zinc assets in Sonora State, Mexico, a very prolific area for several peer mining concerns. Oroco expects to begin producing high-grade gold as well as silver at their Cerro Prieto project in 2013. Adam, welcome back to the
7: program. Thanks for having me again, Alice.
1: You've had some interesting news come out recently. You're clear to begin drilling out the property even further.
7: Oroco announced the receipt of the full suite of permits from the Mexican government that are required to build and operate our open pit gold and silver mine in northern Sonora. That's a big milestone for a company like Oroco. We now have permits in place. We have acquired the surface rights on the property. We, of course, own the mineral rights. We have an economic assessment in place that shows what the capex for the project is going to be, what the working capital is, and how much profit the mine will spend. We have a construction contractor in place, and we have all the necessary rights of way To build the new road to the property which connects us to the nearby highway which is only six kilometers away we've also announced uh, last year that we have an indicative term sheet for the required capital to build the mine in place with a financier in new york and we're presently working our way through the requirements to close that financing
1: and you expect to go into production next year don't you
7: this is a very simple mine to build and to put into operation Uh, it's an open pit which is as simple as it gets the ore starts at surface So there's no time-consuming work to strip away waste before we get to ore. And the processing is by way of heap leach, which is as simple as it gets, again, in the mining business. So we anticipate production in less than a year from the time we start construction. So we could even be in production this year. But if not this year, it's going to be early next year.
1: Now, you're going to use that revenue early on from producing gold and silver to further stepping out the project, correct?
7: We only have drilled about 10 or 15% of the available geology to us. After we completed that process, we realized we had critical mass in the form of a gold resource big enough to finance to production and to generate significant revenue. So we've got tremendous additional geological resources to discover at that property. We have a drill turning on the property right now for the purpose of expanding the resource, and we would expect in the coming years to both drill on our property to the north and south of the current gold mine and as well on the additional properties to the east, which we've just acquired in the last month.
1: One of the things that is attractive about your company is that you're a $0.28 stock and you don't have 250 million shares out there.
7: We've been very careful, very conscious of dilution. Most of Oroco's management have been with the company since its founding. We are very conscious of diluting the shareholders' interest in the company. Oroco has just 63 million shares outstanding. We've advanced the project from its IPO in 2008 to mine construction, which we expect to commence this year and production either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. And as most of the management of the company have been with uh, Oroco since its founding, we are very conscious of shareholder dilution. We want Oroco shareholders to stay very highly leveraged to the potential revenue of this property.
1: It's not a very volatile stock from what I've noticed.
7: During the last year, the capital markets have seen a great deal of volatility, but Oroco's share price has held steady. You're right. We attribute that to the fact that we work very hard to communicate with our shareholders We sit down with them very frequently, and we've attracted a very loyal bunch of, for the most part, institutions who understand the timeframes involved and understand the opportunity here. They also recognize in Oroco the potential to both generate cash flow in the near term and expand the resource that that cash flow is based on, and to generate significant additional value to the shareholders through the development of Oroco's second property, which we call the Shoshapala Project. And Shoshapala has some very interesting attributes which make it, in my opinion, one of the most exciting new exploration plays to come to the market this year.
1: What are your plans for the company over the next 12 months?
7: We will complete the process by which Oroco will finance the construction of the Cerro Prieto mine. We will also continue exploration to expand the resource at that mine. And very importantly, uh, we will commence exploration on our second set of properties, the Shochapala project, which is located in Guerrero State. It is in what has been dubbed the Guerrero Gold Belt. The Guerrero Gold Belt has seen the discovery of over 20 million ounces of gold in the last decade. Discoveries continue in the Guerrero Gold Belt up to today, with Newstrike Capital's amazing gold discovery in the last year.
1: Is that region as prolific as Sonora State?
7: It's a much more concentrated area of gold deposits. From the top of the Guerrero Gold Belt, which is the Anapala deposit discovered by Newstrike, to the bottom of the Guerrero Gold Belt, which is the Chochapala intrusion, owned by Oroco is just thirty five kilometers. Within that thirty five kilometers there are six examples of intrusions, which are geological structures which outcrop on surface. They break the surface if you will. Each of those intrusions which has been drilled, Anapala, El Lamon, Nucay, Los Filos, and Burmahol, has produced a gold resource in excess of three million ounces of gold. Together the region hosts over twenty million ounces of gold, as well as Mexico's largest gold mine, the Los Filos gold mine owned by The last intrusion in the region, which is the site of the original discovery 80 years ago of gold, is owned by Oroco. That's Shoshapala. It's the last of these very exciting geological structures to be drill tested. Oroco plans to focus its exploration activities on Shoshapala during 2012.
1: It sounds as if you've done everything you stated you were going to do, and we can look forward to more potentially exciting news in the coming weeks and months. I
7: think Oroco will just reach its stride in 2012 we will demonstrate that uh, we have a mine that is going in production and will quickly generate cash flow. And for those people who believe that the value of gold is steady or going to continue to rise, we are very highly leveraged to the value of gold in terms of the value of the company versus the potential future revenues. And I think we've got the potential in Shoshapala for a major new discovery, potentially one of the major discoveries of 2012.
1: Thank you, Adam, again for joining us today on the program. I'm Ellis Martin, and I must disclose at this time that I'm a shareholder of Roco Resource Corporation. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO.V. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com.